As you're taking your seat, you can take your Bible and open up to 1 Peter. Well, what if I told you this morning that there is no circumstance or suffering that you are facing that should ever steal your joy? Let me say that again because I, I think sometimes we hear things like that and we're prone to dismiss them or quickly move past them. It's especially true if you're not in the midst of suffering or trial, but if you have been or you are right now, I want you to consider these words very closely. What if I told you that there is no circumstance or suffering that you are facing that should ever steal your joy? You say, well, that's easy for you to say. You have no clue what I'm facing right now. You have no idea what I've been through or what I'm going through right now, maybe at this very moment. But you see, for many of us, this is a very hard truth to swallow. Because truth be told, when we are suffering, when we are going through trials, when we are in pain, we all know that we are prone to lose joy very quickly. We are prone to be without any joy. We all know what that's like. We've all experienced that. If we're honest, we can all admit that our suffering oftentimes robs us of joy. But here's the reason why um, that happens in our lives. It's because we are used to, we've trained ourselves to seek joy from our circumstances instead of seeking joy in our circumstances. We strive to find joy pull joy, receive joy from our circumstances. We believe that they are the source of our joy instead of realizing that our joy must come from outside of our circumstances and must meet us within the midst of our circumstances and suffering. So if our circumstances are good, this is what often happens in our lives, we experience joy. And if our circumstances are hard or bad, we lack joy. But listen, you need to understand this this morning. This is going to be so clear, I hope, from the word of God. Joy is more than a feeling. It is a state of mind. It is not a reaction to our circumstances, but a decision in our circumstances. Joy, in other words, is a choice. In fact, it's been said that true Christian joy is both a privilege and a duty. Joy is not just something we get to experience. Joy is something we are commanded to experience. It is not a suggestion by God. It is demanded by God. Christians are a people who are called to practice joy regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their trials, and regardless of the suffering they face. We must learn, regardless of all of these things, to choose joy. And that's exactly what God wants us to learn how to do in his word. He points us to this through this letter of 1 Peter. Peter, remember, is writing to people who are legitimately suffering. They know what it is to experience pain in difficult circumstances. And yet, as we see in the text this morning, he calls them, as he calls us, to practice and to choose Joy. Listen to what the Word of God says, beginning in verse 6. Peter writes this He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, when we understand what God is doing with and in our suffering, we can choose joy. And that's what Peter wants us to grab a hold of this morning. As he pens this letter, he is calling you and he's calling me to choose joy, but he wants to give us a deeper understanding of what we're going through so that that can actually become increasingly more possible. It's important that you understand what God is doing in your suffering so that you can navigate your way through experiencing increasing joy. So here's what we see first. I can choose to rejoice in suffering because I understand the nature of suffering. I understand the nature of suffering. That's exactly what Peter wants his readers in the first century to grasp, grasp the very nature of suffering. You see, part of choosing this joy is found again in understanding what awaits us. Now, we saw that last week, and this is exactly how Peter begins in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Now, that pulls us all the way back into the previous verses. Remember what we saw last week? Peter holds out to his readers a living hope, a hope that is true and genuine and concrete. He holds out to them the, the hope of an inheritance that is kept in heaven for them. It's, it's undefiled. It's unfading. It's something beyond their wildest imaginations, and he wants them in in the midst of their suffering and trial to look past that and to look to what awaits every single follower of Jesus Christ at the return of Jesus. It will all be worth it in the end. But I want you to see here, he kind of gives us a twin truth. He says, listen, if you want to experience joy, you have to know what awaits you in Christ Jesus, but you also have to understand what you're going through and what God is doing. You'll notice what he says in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's just point this out very quickly. Notice what he says about what they're going through. They have been grieved by various trials. I love the rawness of the word of God. I love how it reminds us, listen, that what we're going through is real. It's hard. It's not easy. It's challenging. The the difficulties in this life grieve us. They produce sorrow and pain and hardships. And here we see Peter acknowledging that. These people have been deeply grieved. I mean, their life is not easy. What they're going through for following Jesus Christ is very, very difficult. It has cost them greatly. God knows that our trials grieve us. He knows the pain that we're going through. But you see what Peter is doing here? He's saying, listen, the way we find joy is is not only understanding what awaits us, but in understanding what's happening to us here and now in the moment of our suffering, in the moment of our trial. What exactly is going on? This helps us fight for joy. And Peter describes here the nature of suffering so that we know what to expect And I want to give you kind of three aspects of the nature of suffering, and I want to give them to you kind of in an applicational way. So here's what we see Peter describing when he describes suffering, and here's what he's calling us to essentially. First is this, prepare for variety. You want to understand the nature of suffering, just prepare for variety. Understand um, that suffering comes in all different shapes and sizes, okay? It's exciting news, right? Get ready. You never know what to expect, right? 
It, it could hit you in a hundred different ways. And here he uses this phrase, various trials. This is the same phrase, by the way, that, Ju- that James uses. When he says this, consider it or count it all joy when you experience various trials. The word various there means a multifaceted, multicolored, right? Again, there are all different shapes and sizes to the trials that we encounter. You say, why does God want us to know this exactly? Why does he want us to know this, that, that we can get hit with any number of different kinds of trials, with different kinds of severity or degrees of difficulty? Well, I think one of the key reasons is so that we're not surprised by it. God doesn't want us to get caught off guard. He knows that when we're caught off guard, we're prone to respond poorly to trials. But if you're expecting trials and you're not surprised by them, you can be ready for them. In fact, in in chapter 4, verse 12, listen to what he says to these believers. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. How often are we caught off guard by our trials? We're like, I wasn't expecting this. Really? I mean, what am I supposed to do with this? God says, listen, don't be surprised. Instead, he says, be prepared. Get ready. I mean, trials are a normal part of life. They're especially normal if you choose to follow Jesus Christ. And he gives us this again. He's wanting us to prepare for this variety, listen, so that we can respond properly. You say, well, well, what exactly do trials look like? I I think part of the reason why Peter says various trials is because he he doesn't want to kind of go through a long list of trials because he knows that that he's not going to be able to exhaust the amount of trials we're going to face in this life. But I think sometimes it's helpful to maybe kind of create some buckets that we can all kind of wrap our minds around, some common ways in which we are all likely going to struggle in this life. So let's just kind of list a few buckets and see if we can find ourselves maybe in one of these or prepare ourselves for what may be coming. I I want you to know this, that some of the trials we face are going to be attacks on our faith. Attacks on our faith. And and by the way, this is exactly what the believers in 1 Peter are experiencing. This is what this context leads us to understand. These believers aren't just suffering kind of everyday kind of trials. They are suffering very specific kinds of trials. They're suffering trials because, again, just hear this, they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. They have counted the cost, they have believed the gospel, they have been willing to declare publicly, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And that came, listen, with this kind of a consequence, trials, suffering, difficulty. In the first century, it wasn't uncommon for a follower of Jesus Christ to have to, listen, uh, lose family members because of following Jesus. It wasn't uncommon in the first century for believers to lose jobs for following Jesus Christ. It wasn't uncommon in the first century, just read through the book of Acts, listen, for Christians to experience public abuse. Think the Apostle Paul. Attacks on our faith will be increasingly more common, and God is calling us to be prepared for this and to respond properly. These kind of attacks will come verbally. Some of you will be mocked and humiliated and attacked for your faith. Some of these attacks may come physically. You may be physically assaulted or abused because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, young followers of Jesus Christ find this kind of of early verbal assault very difficult to endure. And I want to prepare you, if you're young here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're growing up 
in a, a world and in a culture that will not appreciate your faith, that again, we've mentioned this over the past weeks, is becoming increasingly more hostile to your faith. And I understand, listen, it will come at a cost. If you're willing to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to hear a lot of verbal assaults. You're going to have a lot of humiliation. You're going to have a lot of people attacking your reputation because you have decided to follow Jesus Christ. And you need to determine right now, is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ? What am I willing to give up? What costs am I willing to count to follow Jesus Christ? Drive your stake into the ground. We'd be willing to let people attack your faith. Hold fast to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Be unwavering, unwilling to compromise. This will come, secondly, oftentimes in our lives with attacks on our character. It's interesting, in the first century, believers were being attacked verbally and physically, but one of the things that they began to attack, the the world around them, was their reputation. So oftentimes, believers were being slandered publicly, and the attempt was to humiliate them, to show that they were a people who didn't have integrity and and didn't have any character. In fact, in the first century, you want to know what they were saying about believers? You know, believers would get together for their love feasts. It's a term that's actually used in Scripture where they would uh, have fellowship, they would serve one another, and they would worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well, the Roman, the Greco-Roman world began to kind of mock them and their love feast and began to accuse them of all kind of sexual impropriety. They accused them because of the Lord's Supper uh, of cannibalism, made all kinds of wild accusations and attacked their character to try to humiliate them and to disregard their faith. You need to be prepared for attacks on your character But I want you to know, too, that suffering and trials come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes. Sometimes they are related to your faith. Sometimes they're not. We face trials in this life. Some of you are going through some suffering right now because of attacks on your health. And I'll just tell you right now, in our church, we have had a wave of of health issues in the last couple of weeks where people are, are suffering greatly, are going through a significant health trial or difficulty, and I just want you to know, listen, oftentimes if, if your character can't be tarnished by reputation attacks, listen, oftentimes Satan and others will try to attack your health. They'll try to chip away at your health because that weakens your resolve. It makes it more difficult to endure Let me just give you another way in which sometimes um, trials come in our lives, attacks on our relationships. It's a costly thing to follow Jesus, and oftentimes in this life we notice that the suffering we experience, emotional suffering in particular, comes in the closest contexts. I want you to listen to what Jesus said about this in terms of what it means to follow him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter, interestingly, began to say to Jesus, he said this, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You know what Jesus is saying? Listen, you're gonna give up a lot to follow me. It's gonna be costly. You're gonna lose a lot of relationships. You're gonna lose a physical a property. You're gonna lose all kinds of things for, for following me, but you will receive so much in this life in the next Trials are not a one-size-fits-all, but the manifold nature of our suffering, listen, is outmatched by the manifold nature of God's grace. 
Do you want to know what the variety of trials you experience is going to remind you of if you're faithful, if you pull close to God? It's going to show you, God's going to show you over and over again, hey, watch how I meet this trial. Watch how I meet this suffering with my grace. Watch how my mercy is enough for you in this circumstance and in this situation. Over and over again, you're going to be exposed to the manifold nature of God's grace. If you want to understand the nature of suffering, notice this secondly, embrace God's sovereignty. He says, there's various trials you're going to face, but look at how he describes this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the natural question when you read that word, if necessary, is this, who thinks it's necessary that I suffer? Answer? God. God is the one in this context who believes it's necessary that you suffer. Peter is acknowledging in this moment, listen, the sovereignty of God over your life, over every part of it, over every trial you face, over all of your pain, all of your suffering, God is sovereign. He deems it's necessary. This is is a staggering truth to wrap our arms around, but this reminds us, listen, this is so helpful. How can we fight for joy in the midst of of our suffering? Listen, this reminds us that we endure suffering only if God wills it. Only if God wills it. In fact, this is going to become a theme in this letter. Peter, in chapter three, verse 17, says this, listen, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be, listen to this, just notice this, God's will than for doing evil. You say, well, I need something more clear than that. How about chapter 4, verse 19? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Some of our suffering, let's be clear, some of our suffering is self-imposed. Did you catch that in in chapter 3 there? It's a result of us doing evil Oftentimes, suffering in our lives is a consequence of foolish decisions. It just is. Unwise thinking, sinful behavior, it produces trials in our lives. That's oftentimes, sadly, the reality that many of us are facing, self-imposed suffering. Some of the suffering we experience in this life is actually the intentional and strategic design of Satan. He wants to attack you. He wants to go after you. You you think of Job, right? And you think of how Satan tailor-made an approach to Job. Every area, talk about various trials and someone who who suffered of various trials. Satan strategically going after one area of his life after another, trying to chip away, trying to break him down, trying to get him to curse God. Some of our suffering is simply the effects of sin in a fallen world. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. We live in a world that is broken because of sin. And that means that now we face the effects of the fall. We face disease and destruction and war. We face the damaging effects of sin all around us and within us. But I want you to to hear what Peter is saying and what the Spirit of God says to us. All of the suffering that we experience in this world is under the sovereign hand of God. Not one bit of it is outside of his control. None of it is random. None of it is accidental. You know, you often hear people say things like this. Well, my, my comfort is in knowing this, that God will not give me any more than I can handle, right? Incorrect. That's not in the Bible. 
If you've been used to saying that or hearing that, just, just crumple that up and throw it in the garbage. God will often give us way more than we can handle in our own strength. I remember my friend uh, Trevor, or Pastor Trevor Peacock in Calgary, he, again, he, we were talking about this recently and years ago now, about seven, eight years ago, his daughter Hope had a tragic accident and, uh, and I remember he was telling me that they were in the hospital and his daughter likely was going to die. He had brain damage, heart attacks, strokes, and just out of the blue, they woke up and, and it looked like they were going to lose their daughter, their nine-year-old daughter. And he, he told me the first night he was sitting in the hospital and he, he was trying to process just all that he was facing. And he said these words to God. He said, God, you chose the wrong guy. I can't handle this. I can't do it. I can't survive this. And he said as, as he opened the scriptures, he realized God was speaking to him saying, I have chosen you for this very purpose because you can't handle this on your own. I just want you to hear, listen, listen, sometimes what you're going through is a powerful reminder, listen, that God knows what he's doing, he knows what you need, and he wants to remind you, you can trust him. He is sovereign over your life, and part of the reason we often go through trials is because we have become very used to thinking we're the ones in control. God has a way of coming alongside us and going, hey, you're not in control. You don't have the power. You don't have the resources. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have what it takes to get through this. You need me. By the way, some of you I know, you're in trials maybe right now or you've said these words just like I have. Like, God, I, what are you doing? I can't see what you're doing. And God says, I know you can't see what I'm doing, but guess what? I see the whole picture way clearer than you do. Trust me, I know exactly what I'm doing. There are things that God is doing in trials that only he knows and can see. And he is calling us to trust him. Your suffering isn't random. It is, in some sense, tailor-made for you by the sovereign, loving, merciful God of the universe. And if that's not enough, by the way, to find yourself rejoicing in, to know that God is in control of your circumstances right now, listen to this, just consider the longevity. You want to be able to rejoice in your trials? Consider all that we've looked at, but consider the longevity of your trial. You say, what do you mean by that? Look at what he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Can you just hear Peter coming along? Like, Peter's a shepherd. Can you hear him coming alongside the church and, and wanting, listen, to shepherd their souls and wanting to comfort them and wanting to bring them a, a, just a glimpse of hope, right? Just keep holding on. You can hear Peter saying, this is only going to last for a little while. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that in an earthly sense, your trial is necessarily going to be short. You know, maybe you're going through a trial like, okay, maybe, maybe another month, just a little bit longer. Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe it'll only be, relatively speaking, a short period of time in your earthly life. But that's not his point here. You see what Peter is doing? He's saying to us, listen, you need to view your trial and the difficulties and the suffering of your life in relation to eternity. There is a day coming, in other words, listen, where what you suffered and endured in this life is going to feel like such a little while. It is going to be a blip on the radar screen. It is going to be such a brief moment in time. You will completely forget about it. John Calvin said that afflictions ought ever to be estimated by their end. You know, it's kind of like, like a child on a road trip. You ever done one of those? Some of you guys are crazy like us, and you like to go on these long road trips with your kids, young kids. 
Well, what's the first question they ask? Are we there yet? What's the second question they ask? Okay, you just, you can't, I mean, it's just, it's incessant, right? You know, you've been, you've been there, I can see all you, like, oh my goodness, I never want to do that again. And then you're going to do it. You're going to do it. It's like a child on a road trip, all of us in one sense, right? We're like a child on a road trip who's suffering through the agony of the journey, at least the perceived agony. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we can hear God saying to us, listen to his word right now, just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. The pain of the journey, listen, will be completely forgotten. Before you know it, you're going to be there. You're going to be, the Disneyland's coming, right? And you're going to get there. And when you get out, all of the pain and suffering that you thought you just experienced, you will completely forget it all. It will be utterly eclipsed by the joy that awaits you when you get there. Isn't that good news? Rejoice, it won't last forever. That's what God is telling us. It will soon be forgotten. You see, I can choose to rejoice in suffering. I can choose to rejoice in suffering because I understand the nature of suffering. Yes, there is variety, but God is sovereign. And listen, in the end, it will feel like a little while. Secondly, I can choose to rejoice in suffering because I understand the necessity of suffering. And here, Peter gets into the purpose of trials. You, you know, what do you mean it, God deems it's necessary? Well, here, that's exactly what Peter wants to explain to us. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Notice the so that there. It's the purpose for which we endure suffering. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why are they so necessary? Here's why. Because God is working through suffering in ways he couldn't without. Just listen to that. God is working in suffering in ways he couldn't without it. Here's something just to grab a hold of in your life. Listen, we learn more from life's trials than we do from life's triumphs. God can do more with one hard circumstance than he can with a thousand easy situations in your life. Do you realize that? In one moment, under the pressure cooker of God's grace and the suffering you're experiencing, God can refine you more. He can do more in your life in that one moment than he can with a thousand easy circumstances that you will go through. Three ways that we can understand the necessity of suffering from this one verse. Here's the first one. God reveals the authenticity of faith. You say, what does God do through suffering and trials? God reveals the authenticity of our faith. You notice there that he uses the word, it's being tested. And he uses this, this imagery of gold that perishes, testing out the genuineness of the, the product so to speak. You see, it's like a jeweler putting his most precious metal into the crucible. God, in the same way, he proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. He proves our faith through the suffering we experience. He reveals it like he can't in any other way. And here's what he's trying to get us to grapple with if you're going through suffering, if you're going through trials. Is my faith made of pure gold or is my faith fool's gold? 
Do I have the real thing? You know what, pure, you know what uh, fool's gold is? You know, pyrite. It's a mineral that, that looks like gold and oftentimes was mistaken for gold, but when it's kind of melted down and it's inspected carefully, it's proved to be a fake, valueless, not the real thing, not even close. And this is what God is doing in the midst of trials. He's putting us in the fire of affliction. And he's burning our faith. He's increasing the heat, the intensity, so that we can see what our faith is really made of. Is it actually there? Is it the real thing? You know, one of the things you hear oftentimes, coming out kind of a, you know, in cultural analysis and, and kind of evangelical polls, they'll often say, you know, there's an epidemic in the church these days. You know, youth are leaving the church. Right? Millennials are leaving the faith. You hear that? Uh, we see a mass of young people falling away from the faith. You've heard that before, right? Falling away from the faith. The real problem, listen, the real problem is that the faith that they, or maybe that you, thought they had isn't actually real. Okay? That's the real problem. It's not that people are losing their faith. It's not that they're just choosing not to experience or exercise their faith at that moment. The real problem we face in the church today, especially in North America, is that what we have peddled as real faith is actually not the real thing. It's fake. That's because the kind of faith that they have been offered, many of you were offered this in your upbringing, was a sad substitute for the real thing. It wasn't legitimate. It was this simple, you know, walk the aisle, raise a hand, and I'm not fully out on all that stuff. Listen, but I've got my concerns. Listen, children, this is my concern. Some of you have young children. Children are often told to make a profession of faith without understanding the cost of faith. Many of you were told simply, listen, to make a profession of faith, but nobody ever explained to you the cost of faith. This is a massive problem, okay? Here's why this is a problem. Because you don't see whether or not you have counted the cost until you meet a moment of testing and trial. Jesus said it like this, the one, you know, the seed that's spread on the soils, the ones on the rock are those who... Uh, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I want that. Who doesn't want heaven? Right? What, what child doesn't want heaven? If your child doesn't want heaven, you've got really big problems, okay? At a young age, what, what person doesn't want happiness and blessing? Oh, you offer that to anybody, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I want that. And then you say, okay, okay, here's the deal. It's gonna cost you everything. It's a different story. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while. Listen, they give the appearance of believing. Listen, and in time of, listen, testing, testing, they fall away. God cranks it up. He ratchets up the pressure. The fires are burning hot. The faith is placed in the crucible. And all of a sudden, it is burned up like straw. It wasn't there in the first place. I just want to take a moment to remind you of what the gospel is. The gospel is a message of good news. There is blessing. There is life to be found in the gospel of Jesus. We rejoice in this. We celebrate this. And listen, there are many people who love this side of the gospel, 
my fear is that there are way too many who are hearing only that part of the gospel because the gospel is only good news if you're willing to count the cost. Jesus mentioned this over and over again. This is built into the first century, just in case you're like, well, really, is this the kind of gospel they believed in the first century? It is built into the fabric of the context in which the gospel was given. Hey, drop your nets, come and follow me. Leave it all behind. Your old life is gone. You're dead to all of that. You need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. This is the stuff that Jesus said. And and we get surprised when we're like, well, I didn't know it was going to cost me this much. I didn't know it was going to be this hard to follow Jesus. I didn't sign up for this. And the truth is, you're probably right. You didn't. And so you need to actually sign up for it. Like, that's not a very good sales pitch. I'm not interested in making you a sales pitch. I'm, I'm interested in offering you the real gospel. And you can't have life in Jesus Christ unless you're willing to lose your life here and now. You can't. You can't have it. I just, I'm not saying that to try and beat you. I want you to know the real thing. I want you to have the real thing so that when you meet testing, when you meet the trials and suffering of life, your faith endures. Your faith is proven to be the real thing. That's what we want, amen? And that's what God wants to offer you. The real thing, not some phony substitute. God offers you not an easy life, but he offers you eternal life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And enduring trials is an important indicator of our true status in Jesus Christ. I mean, just listen to the first century uh, book of Acts. Listen, Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Nobody is exempt from this kind of suffering. Not one of us. Let trials affirm the authenticity of your faith and rejoice as God shows your faith to be pure and true gold. Jonathan Edwards said this, pure gold shows its purity chiefly in the furnace. Let God show it to you over and over again if need be. Secondly, notice this, that God refines the purity of faith. It's not just that he proves it or he tests it to show whether or not it's real. He actually wants to strengthen and purify our faith. Now listen, both the strength and the purity of our faith is neither demonstrated nor developed until it is tested by suffering, by trials. There is a certain kind of maturity that can only be attained through the discipline of suffering in our lives. It's, it's kind of like the, the principle, if I can take you into the gym for a moment, into the athletic arena, it's the principle of time under tension, okay? This is a, a well-practiced um, belief and principle in the gym, but you can't grow muscle and you can't keep growing muscle unless you continue to increase your time under tension, right? This is why um, you, you stagnate if you're, if you're looking to build muscle. You stagnate if you don't increase the intensity of the weight, the pressure that you're placing on the muscle, and you don't increase the time at which you do that, the amount of reps you're doing or, or the, the kind of reps you're doing. And listen, it's the same way. In that, in that arena, listen, the muscle gets broken down by the tension and by the time. Muscles tear, but listen, that's the only way the muscle can be built up with the right kind of nutrition and the right kind of rest. It begins to build stronger and stronger and stronger, and that's exactly what God intends in the Christian life. He wants to increase at times. Listen, this is why sometimes, listen, the longer you're in the faith, the more mature you think you are, listen, oftentimes God will ramp up the trials in your life. He'll give you harder trials, heavier trials, more difficult trials. Why? 
Because he knows he's got to keep working on you. He's got to keep growing you. And to do so, he's got to break you down with greater weight and greater intensity. It's been said, listen, the darker the night, the brighter the stars, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Trial is the school of trust And our trials keep us trusting. You say, how do they keep us trusting? Here's what they do. Listen, in the fiery trials, God begins to burn away our self-confidence, okay? Do you see how that works? God throws you into these situations like we've already said, and he does so on purpose so that you realize you're not strong enough. You don't have what it takes. You desperately need him, and you need his strength. You see, suffering is the school of sanctification. It's the place where we grow rapidly and oftentimes most. In our, many of you can point to trials in your life that you didn't want, that you didn't enjoy, but you can look back to and you can see how God used those to rapidly expedite your spiritual growth. I mean, he took you to a place you've never been before. Suffering is the school of sanctification, but can I just, can I just remind you, listen, do you not know what steals our joy in trials? Sin. Sunday school answer. It's okay this time. Sin steals our joy in trials. Sin robs us of joy. Someone once said this, nothing will stop your song quicker than your sin. Nothing will remove your rejoicing quicker than your sin. But do you want to know what fuels joy in your life? Sanctification. Obedience, growing in godliness, actually fuels your joy. Putting off sin, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something so satisfying. There's something so energizing. Listen, about gaining victory over our unhealthy cravings and desires. Isn't there? I mean, you know what this feels like in your life. You know what it is to find victory over the unhealthy cravings and desires in your life. You know what it is to live in that and to breathe that in and to find such incredible and increasing joy in your life. You know what it's been like to be so good. You know, you've been so consistent. I mean, you're looking in the mirror and you're starting to see the results. People around you are, are noticing. They're like, man, you look good. What have you been doing? You're like, yeah, I feel good too. I'm starting to feel like this consistent, this diet is really working well. I have just been on top of it. It feels good to kind of keep those cravings, those bad, unhealthy cravings at bay. And you know what it's like to be moving along this path, feeling good, looking good. And you're driving along. And you look down the road, and maybe it's been a hard day. Maybe, maybe, listen, maybe the intermittent fasting is taking a toll for the worse, and you just can't take it anymore. You look ahead of you, and you perceive, you think you're seeing the Shekinah glory of the Lord, and it is the golden arches. (laughs) And in a moment of of weakness and frailty, you give in to your your fleshly cravings, and you pull through the drive-thru, and you sit in the parking lot. You can't even wait to get home, and you pull out that Big Mac, and you sink your teeth into that Big Mac, and you enjoy that as it goes down. You take those delicious, savory, salty, golden pieces of potato we call french fries, and you gobble them back as quickly as you can, and it feels so satisfying, but then in a moment, instantaneously almost, you feel deep shame and regret. 
You're like, I don't feel that. That's because you're not saved. (laughs) (laughs) Or you seared your conscience to a really, really high degree. Why, why, why do we feel that? Like, humor the, the illustration. I needed a moment of levity. Listen, this is heavy stuff, I know. But listen, why, why, do we, why, why do we feel that instant shame and regret when everything has been going so good? Because there's something, listen, there's something so much more satisfying than saying no. To holding fast to what we've committed to do, to looking down the road at the end results, to believing that if I say no to this now, it'll work out better in the end. It is gonna be so much better for me. I will feel better, I will look better, I will act better. And listen, this is, this is true in the Christian life. In the moments of weakness, we oftentimes, in the moments of suffering and trial, we oftentimes find ourselves, listen, running into sin. Because we feel in the moment, listen, it's gonna be so much more satisfying. I just, I just need an instant hit of satisfaction. But in the moment we do that, we know. In the moment we bite the apple, in the moment we take the sin, in that very moment, almost instantaneously, we feel the shame and regret in our lives because we know, we know, we have just short-circuited the spiritual growth that the Lord designed for us to experience. We know that we have just sent ourselves maybe into a tailspin. We know that God had so much more for us, so much better for us, and if we just by the grace of God and the power of his spirit had self-control and put those sinful cravings to rest, it would be so much better right now in this moment. And see, that's Peter's point in this letter. Remember, at the very end of chapter five and verse 12, he's saying, listen, I'm writing these things to you so that you may stand firm, so that you may not give in, so that you may not compromise. And I know that the pressure oftentimes will force you into this place where you feel that compromise is best. And I'm telling you right now, it is never best. Don't do it. See, God is refining us through trials and suffering, and when you reject sin and run to sanctification, you will begin to get that taste of the satisfying sanctification of the Spirit of God. Listen, you need to believe this. In the moments of suffering that you're facing, listen, in the moment of trial, maybe this is for you right now, God isn't trying to destroy your faith. He's not. He's trying to refine your faith. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to increase your joy. The question is, are you letting him? Suffering is necessary for this purpose, to refine our faith. Why? Because through suffering, look at this next, God rewards the perseverance of faith. Do you notice this? He says that this faith will become more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. It may be found ultimately in the end, listen, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look, fire does not destroy gold. It only removes the impurities. And yet what we see here is that even gold will not outlast genuine persevering faith. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring, and it produces an infinitely more valuable result. It results, notice this, in praise and glory and in honor. You say to who? To you, first and foremost. You ever think, like, why do people do crazy, crazy athletic feats, right? Why do people do Iron Mans? This is stupid. Why do people eat two-pound hamburgers and a whole bunch of fries in 20 minutes to say they did it. 
They get their name on the wall. I got the t-shirt, I climbed the mountain, I accomplished the feat, right? For glory, for honor, to be valued. The emphasis here is on the reward that believers receive. Listen, there is a sense in which we are all thrust into the athletic field, into the athletic arena, and we're called to run hard so that when we cross the finish line, we will receive the reward that God has in store for us. Listen, the reward we're waiting to hear is this, well done, good and faithful servant. You made it, you did it. And yet, here's what we know as well. This is not just about your honor, it's not just about your glory, and it's not just about your praise. You see, in a secondary sense, all of the honor and glory and praise that will be heaped upon us when we cross that finish line will ultimately redound to God since he is the one who empowers believers to persevere. He is the one who keeps us, and he is the one who has kept our inheritance waiting for us. You know, it's kind of like a a young child, you know, learning to swim. And, and, you know, you got, you got, like a dad does, has his arms underneath the body of his child, his child, and he begins to move him from one side of the pool across the other. And the child is splashing like crazy, using all their energy. But as, as the father brings the child to the other side, he looks at the child and says, you did it, buddy. Way to go. I'm so proud of you. But, you know, every one of us, when we get to the end like that, we're going to look at God and we're going to say, God, Dad, I know, come on, I know I know, I know who's really responsible for me getting here. I was flailing my arms like crazy. I was using all of the energy I possibly could. But I know and you know, if you let me go, even for a minute, I would have drowned and I never would have made it. But you, you carried me across the water and you brought brought me safely to the shore. And the word of God, even in 1 Peter here, says this, that, listen, those who are faithful will receive an unfading crown of glory. There awaits for the faithful, listen, a crown of glory to be placed on your head, a reward for your faithfulness to the Lord. But one of the things that's so fascinating is that in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, you know what it says? The elders who surround the throne of the Lamb of God in a moment of worship, here's what they all do. They, they take off their crown of glory, their own reward for their faithfulness, and they cast it down at the feet of the Lamb of God. And they praise him and they worship him and they realize in the end, it was all you. It was all you. It always was you. You are the faithful God. And in the end, our hope here is that that is exactly what happens to each one of us at the revelation of Jesus. The day he's revealed, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to receive that crown of glory, but I promise you, the greatest joy you will have is taking that crown off and casting it at the feet of your Savior. See, I can choose to rejoice in suffering because, lastly, I understand the need in suffering. Peter looks at their response here and he encourages them to keep doing what they're doing. He says to them, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what do I, what do I need in suffering? 
you need what they were doing, you need what they had, and it's simply, if I could just put it as simply as possible, it's this, you need unashamed affection for Jesus Christ. Unashamed affection for Jesus Christ. He looks at these people, and you just need to hear this, he is not rebuking them, nor is he even exhorting them to do something they're not doing, he is commending them for what they're already in the practice of doing. And so three things he calls us to in the midst of suffering, what we need to be doing to continue to to experience joy, keep on loving Jesus, keep on trusting Jesus, and keep on enjoying Jesus. This is what he calls them to. Now, I want you to listen how Peter frames this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. Now, think about how staggering this is to Peter. This is the apostle Peter. This is the disciple who lived with Jesus. He did life. He had seen Jesus. He had seen him up close and personal. He had seen the miracles. He had seen the displays of power. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus unzipped his flesh and shone forth his glory that no man had yet seen. He had every reason to love Jesus. He had stood on the shores after he had denied Jesus three times, and he had seen Jesus welcome him back into the fold. Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Of course Peter loved him. He had witnessed so much. He had seen it all, and he had been embraced by the real physical arms of Jesus. These people are just like us. They haven't seen Jesus. They haven't seen him feed the 5,000. They haven't seen him heal the leper. They hadn't seen him raise the dead. They hadn't seen any of that. And Peter looks at him and goes, I'm astounded. I can't believe what the Spirit of God is doing you you haven't seen any of this and yet you love him Peter's Peter's blown away by this he's like this is this is what it's all this is what it's all about you love Jesus no I know what you see you see persecution because of Jesus you experience suffering and hate because of Jesus and yet listen you're willing to look past all of that and you're willing to keep your eyes focused on Jesus these believers had embraced these trials and have chosen to respond properly. You know, trials have a way of exposing what you love most and reminding you of what you must love most. What or who matters most in the moment of suffering? The temptation we face in trials is to flee, to not endure, to run towards lesser loves, lesser things. Peter says, you can't see him, but you love him. Keep keep loving him. Let your affection be him greater than your affection for anyone or anything else in the world. And I promise you, you will find the joy you need to encounter these trials. And then he says, keep on trusting Jesus. So you do not now see him. You believe in him. You trust him completely. You have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, but you are believing that he will help you endure and that what awaits you is so much better than what you're facing right now. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Trials have a way of exposing what you trust most and reminding you of what you must trust most. They show what we trust for comfort, for peace, for rest, what we believe will save us, what we believe will heal us. You know, one of my, my favorite songs, the song is just always resonates with my heart. You know, the, the lyrics say, you know, in the morning when I arise, give me Jesus. And you know, the song ends, you know, when I come to die, give me Jesus. But here's, here's what 
it's getting at. It's what the song gets at. In, in the end of the day, what Peter's saying is, listen, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. I don't need anything else. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he forfeits his soul? He says, keep on enjoying Jesus. The end product of faith that has been purged and purified is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's saying, in a sense, listen, you're rejoicing with this joy now, but it's a future joy that's fueling you. You know, we're responsible to rejoice always, the Bible says, before, during, and after hardships. But Peter's point is so powerful. The quality and sincerity and fervency of joy are both refined and intensified by the trials we experience. Suffering can produce a joy so profound that it is beyond mere words. It is inexpressible. It is all-consuming. It is overwhelming. It is speechless joy. It defies all human understanding and explanation. And I want you to notice that it is a joy that is filled with glory. This evokes images of God in the Old Testament. The bright, shining radiance of his presence you see, even now, what Peter is saying, we, we don't see Jesus and his glory and fullness right now, but we experience something in advance of the great and indescribable glory of that coming day. But I want you to look at verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, listen, the day is coming where you will see and experience the fullness of his glory. We will see Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. We will see Jesus. If you're in Christ, it is a guarantee. He is coming on the clouds. He will be revealed in blazing glory, and you will stare at him with your two eyes. Our faith will be made sight, and we will enjoy the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ like we have never enjoyed it before, and we will enjoy it forevermore. Pain will one day give way to praise. As faith gives way to sight, grief will give way to glory. You know, I, I, God has seen fit to allow me to experience so much of what I preach in personal ways. And over the last number of years, I've, I've, I've been dealing with some health issues. And you may see me limping around here from time to time. A few months back, I had to sit down and preach because I was in quite a bit of pain. And, um, and my pain's nothing compared to a lot of people's pain and suffering, but it is what it is. And one of the things that happens to me is I get hit with my, in my joints. I get these flare-ups in my joints, and it becomes incredibly painful, excruciatingly painful. And, um, you know, the last time, a, a couple months ago, I was, I was in bed, and I was dealing with this pain in my foot, and I was in so much pain. I couldn't sleep for, like, it was the third night, and I was lying there. I couldn't sleep. I'm just in incredible pain. And I was lying on my bed, and I was beginning to think, I was praying. I was talking to the Lord. I didn't realize I was praying. I was just talking, and I realized I was praying, and I was praying like angry prayers to God. I'm like, God, why is this happening? Like, why, why, why is this taking so long to, to heal? Why is this, like, this is terrible. I don't enjoy this. I'm not liking this. I don't want this. And I found myself kind of talking to God and praying to God and actually saying things like that to God in, in my moment of weakness. And I'm, I'm literally saying to God things like, God, why can't you just let me do the things I want to do? I can't do anything. I'm incapacitated. I can't, I can't, I can't be healthy. I can't do, I can't exercise. I can barely walk around my house. I got to crawl around my house. And I don't like this, God. 
And God in the moment, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be overly mystical. And all I'm saying is God convicted me and pressed into my soul. And, and I, I believe God spoke to me so powerfully in the depths of my soul. And as if God was saying this to me, not audibly, listen, but as if God was saying, Ian, if this never changes, if you never get to experience the things you love in this world ever again, if you never get to enjoy the things in this world that you love to enjoy in this world, am I going to be enough for you? And I'll tell you this, in, in a, a moment, listen, of reflection and some serious repentance. Yeah, I know what the Lord was doing. He was telling me in that moment, Ian, you're not believing what you say you believe. And I'll tell you this right now, a- after repenting sufficiently to the Lord, and I believe I'll st- I likely, like you, will still have to keep repenting of this kind of sin, my answer to the Lord is yes. Yes, Lord, yes, of course. And I I will learn to rejoice in this, Lord. And this is nothing compared to what others are going through or maybe what I will even go through. But yes, Lord, I want to learn the lesson now. And I I just tell you that to say this. Listen, that in our darkest moments of suffering, what God is wanting us to do is recognize that our joy is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in those moments of weakness. They're found in the Lord himself. God is testing and he's teaching me. How about you? You may not have chosen your trials, but you can choose joy in them. The Lord, help us to choose joy, amen? Help us to choose him. By his grace and his kindness, he wants to help us in that. He holds out to us our living hope, the future that awaits us in Christ Jesus, and he helps us now to understand the nature, the necessity, and our great need in the midst of suffering. Now, the only question left for us is this, will we choose joy? Will we choose joy? Father, please, uh, we pray, help us in this. We recognize, Lord, our sinful tendencies and our weakness. We recognize, Lord, our human frailty. And Father, we just confess to you now in this moment, Father, that we want to choose you. We want to choose joy. And God, forgive us when we have chosen lesser things. Forgive us, Lord, when we have run and put our trust and hope in things that cannot satisfy our souls. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been frustrated with you or angry even with you, where we have rejected your kindness and grace, where we have not acknowledged, Lord, that you know better than we do. And God, I pray that you would give us each now in this place strength and grace to say, God, in the hardest times, in the darkest moments, in the deepest valleys, we will choose joy because we have chosen you. Help us in this now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.